This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.3. Mistakes were made. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and mecha pilot in training. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob and Kai Shiden apologist. You could also say Kai Shiden super fan. I'm not a super fan, though. I don't, that's the thing. Like, I don't like Kai. He's not (laughs) likable. I think people are overly critical of him for unfair reasons. This week, we're discussing episode three of First Gundam, Vote to Attack. After we talk through the episode and our first impressions, we'll discuss physics in the 1970s, the characteristically Japanese style of consensus decision-making on display in the episode, and a new friend we'll soon get to know very well, the humble Minovsky particle. We left off with the successful evacuation of Side 7. Amuro, or to be more precise, the overwhelming power of the Gundam, has beaten back the Xeon forces, including Char, the famous Red Comet. The White Base is fleeing to the relative safety of Luna 2, with Xeon hot on their heels. No spoilers, but is there anything you think our first-time watchers, myself included, should know heading into this episode? Absolutely. I think it would be very helpful for people to know what Luna 2 is, where it is, and why the White Base is fleeing there. Because when I first watched this, I thought Luna 2 was like the moon or on the moon. Luna 2 is an asteroid, and it's very close to side 7. To really understand what Luna 2 is and why it's where it is, we need to talk a little bit about the geography of the universal century. I'm hesitant on the word geography because we're in space now. Would you say astrography? I would. So let's talk astrography. And to talk about astrography in the universal century, we need to first understand Lagrange points. Now, these are real-world physics. They're an amazing little gravitational phenomenon that exists whenever you have a system of three distinct objects where two of them are much more massive than the other. In such a system, there are a couple of points within the system created by the gravities of the two large objects, where the third, much smaller object can exist in a stable orbit relative to the other two. What that means is that as the system moves through space, as everything rotates and orbits, these three objects nonetheless maintain their positions relative to each other. To give a concrete Gundam example, in the Earth-Moon system with the colonies, if you put a colony at a Lagrange point on the other side of the moon, no matter how all of the different pieces move around, it will always be on the other side of the moon. I mentioned in a previous episode that that is where the principality of Xeon is. Side 3 is located at a Lagrange point on the other side of the moon from the Earth. Now, just to be maximally confusing, that Lagrange point is not designated Lagrange point 3, or L3. In fact, it's L2. Ha! How many Lagrange points are there? There are five. Wait, so there are more sides than there are Lagrange points? Yes. 
So Lagrange point is kind of a misnomer because it implies that there's like one coordinate position in space for each point where this stable gravitational system exists. But they're actually more like fields created by the huge sizes of the Earth and the Moon. There are areas of space where you can position a spacecraft or a colony and have a stable orbit. So because these fields are so large, you can put more than one thing there. You can put side seven and Luna two, or you can put multiple sides. Got you. This gets a little bit more confusing because later on in Gundam, some of these sides are going to be reassigned. The positions will change. We'll deal with that when we get there. So for the purposes of this discussion, everything I'm saying relates specifically to Mobile Suit Gundam 0079, First Gundam. So three of the Lagrange points, one, two, and three, are in a line with the Earth and the Moon. One of them is on the far side of the Moon, one of them is between the Moon and the Earth, and then one of them is on the other side of the Earth from the Moon. Lagrange points L4 and L5 are sort of in the Moon's orbit, one of them chasing and one of them leading the Moon around the Earth. Both of those Lagrange points have multiple sides. L4 and L5 are the most stable. Ls 1, 2, and 3 are slightly less stable, but because we're talking in cosmic terms, less stable means that something placed there might deorbit after millions of years. So still pretty stable. If you're lost, which I definitely am a little bit, uh, check our show notes for those maps. I find the visual aid very helpful. To be even more confusing, L3 is where side 7 is, and it's as far from Xeon as you can get. L3 is positioned opposite the Earth from the Moon, so as the Moon rotates around the Earth, so does L3, or side 7, and it always keeps the Earth between it and the Moon. That makes it the farthest from Xeon, the hardest for Xeon forces to get to, and therefore the only part of space that is still relatively within Federation control at this point. Side 7, unfortunately, is not much of a colony. Most of the sides are made up of many, many, many of these uh, cylindrical colonies. But Side 7 only has one that was only partially completed. What Side 7 also has, however, is Luna 2. Luna 2 is an asteroid that was pulled into Earth's orbit and placed at L3 so that the materials to build the colonies could be extracted from it. When construction on Side 7 ceased, Luna 2 was repurposed and turned into a fleet base for the Federation. So it's relatively nearby, but of course this is space, so relatively nearby is actually pretty far away. And when the white base fled from Side 7, really the only friendly place they could go, the only place in space still controlled by the Federation, is Luna 2. And this episode is basically a high-speed space chase sequence. We'll put links to more information about Lagrange points and some helpful visual aids in the show notes, and we'll talk more about this in a few episodes when we do a deep dive on the colonies. With that better understanding of where Luna 2 is relative to Side 7 and why the Side 7 refugees are fleeing there, we are ready to start the episode. A narrow escape. The white base has fled the ruined Side 7 colony and is making all haste for Luna 2, an asteroid dragged into Earth's orbit and converted into the Federation's main remaining stronghold in space. Shars Musai pursues them, but at a distance and without launching any more attacks. Mirai Yashima, a civilian with a license to fly large space gliders and the most qualified pilot remaining aboard the white base, guesses that Shar must be waiting for resupply she suggests an attack, while the Xeon forces are off balance. Acting Captain Bright summons all the crew and passengers 
to vote whether to attack or flee with all haste to Luna II. Some older adults among the civilians vote to flee, but our heroes all vote to attack, even if Kai and Amuro hold their votes until the decision is already clear. Shar has made contact with the Xeon cargo ship, an older model carrying only a fraction of what he requested, but it is all the Xeon fleet can spare. Xeon, it seems, is having supply shortages. Amuro, supported by cadet pilot Ryu Jose operating in the core fighter, launch a surprise attack on the Xeon ships while they're docked for the supply transfer. Shar counterattacks in his Zaku, and though he may not be able to defeat the Gundam, he is easily able to keep Amuro away from the ships. Ryu inadvertently blocks the white base from using its main guns, and Bright is unable to reach the inexperienced young pilot to order him out of the way. Amuro's earnest neighbor Hayato and resident jerk Kai roll out in one of the other new Federation mobile suits, a truly bizarre machine consisting of a Gundam torso on tank treads, appropriately named the Gun Tank. Working together at last, the White Base crew destroys the cargo ship, but not before Shar's crew manages to collect two Zaku. Their mission accomplished, the White Base's team returns to their new home, where Amuro receives another dressing down from the acting captain, this time for underestimating Shar and overcomplicating his tactics. This is starting to look like a pattern. This is episode three, Vote to Attack. We open with the refugees being taken care of by Frabo and the Orphans, which mm-hmm. sounds like the name of a band. <laughs> what, kind, what genre of music do Frabo and the Orphans play? Obviously punk rock. But like Joan Jett era punk rock. Yeah, but that's still punk. Come of on. Of course it's punk. I just, I'm being specific. The Runaways-esque. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice in that scene that the hallways that people are walking around are in a big circle? This They slope upwards? I, I did notice the perspective was weird. Mm-hmm. I couldn't quite put my finger on why. Like the colonies, they achieve pseudo-gravity in the ships by having a circular section that rotates. Makes sense. This episode also gives us our first mention of the humble Minofsky particle, which isn't explained at all, but it is the it is the lie that makes everything else true. It is the little bit of fiction that allows so much of the science in this show to make sense. It's the a wizard did it. Yes. It's well, it's the wizard. The Minofsky particle did it. Yes. Pretty much, yeah. Basically, for everything, you can work back to get to the Minofsky particle. Why do they fight in close visual range? Well, the Minofsky particle interferes with long-range sensors. Where do the beam weapons come from? Well, they're basically shooting high-energy Minofsky particles. How do they get power to run all these mobile suits? Well, from the reactors that produce the Minofsky particles. Which gives us a point for additional research. What was going on in physics at the time in terms of you know studies of waves and particles and different types of energy and matter in space that might have influenced the creation for the purposes of this science fiction, a new particle. I feel like in the first couple minutes, we get a sort of interesting look at the socioeconomic stratification in their society right now, because Sela takes a dig at Bright for having never left Earth. And that that makes him one of the elite. Yes. Which is not out of keeping historically, like the sort of people who would go and populate colonies or territories are not generally the elites. 
And it gives us a sense of Sela's sympathies. She's working for the Federation right now, but she seems sympathetic to the plight of the colonists in space. And she seems reluctant to say that she's from Earth or she's lying. She could be lying. We don't know a lot about Sela. We don't know a lot about any of the characters, but Sela is the one I think who most shows up and is suddenly part of the crew, but we don't know anything about her background. And is maybe Artesia? No, Artesia was too gentle. Sela is too strong. <laughs> and then segs into people on the bridge, and I think we get a glimpse both of Bright's uncertainty in his sudden positioning command, and also potentially Mirai's comfort with being in charge and making decisions. All we know is that her family is famous. We don't know for what or why, but if it's famous enough that the captain of the white base has heard of her, or at least of her family, that goes a little ways towards explaining how comfortable she seems. I feel like she's even leaning against the bulkhead as she's talking to Bright, saying- Sipping from a juice box. Like, oh, well, we ought to attack, you know, while they're resupplying is a perfect opportunity, mm -hmm. and we need to make time to get to Luna 2 and- but while she's very comfortable and she knows what to do, she's also very competent at leading other people to those conclusions. She's very much able to make Bright make the decision that she wants him to make. Well, and for whatever reason, Bright doesn't seem as irritated with her for making the suggestion as he is with Sela for then being like, yeah, we should do a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately consults a man, immediately mm -hmm. is like to, another, to one of the other guys on the bridge. What do you <laughs> yeah, Bright Bright in this episode shows some irrational favoritism, especially given the end of the episode when Amuro and Ryu return from their successful raid and Ryu has forgotten to turn his comm circuit on in his fighter and so cannot receive orders and cannot get out of the way so they can fire the main guns. And Bright says, oh, that's fine. Just remember your training. Next time you'll be better. And Amuro, who has successfully dueled with two Xeon mobile suits and come back alive and managed to at least stymie their attempt to get more supplies, Bright chews him out. The only real justification for that is that Bright just thinks that civilians have no business anywhere near fighting. Bright trusts fellow Navy personnel to respect the rules. Whereas with civilians, I get this sense that he feels like he has to lay down the law and he has to be harsh with them so that they will respect him. Then we should consider his behavior with Hayato because with Hayato, Bright shows him the same sort of friendly respect uh, that he gives to the other Navy personnel, but not to Amuro or Kai. Well, Kai points out uh, <laughs> that Hayato is a brown noser. <laughs> Hayato is very willing to be led. Uh, Kai and Amuro, not so much. We are, we are also left wondering a bit about what precisely Amuro's motivations are. Because when Frabo finds him before the battle starts, he's in his cockpit, he's been working on the Gundam basically nonstop. She's bringing him fresh clothes and food because he hasn't gone to change and he hasn't gone to eat. And he tells her, oh, I just, you know, I don't want to die. But it doesn't seem like that's the real answer. Well, and she doesn't believe him. She's like, hmm, I wonder. And he says... 
yeah, that's exactly it. But, you know, is it actually vengeance? Is it that it's thrilling? Is it that he, for all that it's scary, really likes figuring the Gundam out? Well, he has this rivalry with Char. He has a sort of rivalry with Bright. Is he trying to prove himself to these two? Almost like older brother. Yeah. There's that competitive. He wants to hang with the older boys. I'd like to talk a little more about the voting scene. I I do think it's significant that they only ask combat personnel Mm -hmm. to make the decision. This actually made me think of uh, one interesting tidbit. The name Mobile Suit was inspired by the book Starship Troopers uh, by Robert Heinlein because they have mobile infantry in powered suits. One of the notable facets of the book Starship Troopers is that the only people allowed to vote have served a military term. So I wonder if that's not more of that inspiration seeping in, or if we're meant to see this as Wright does not think the opinions of the civilians are relevant to this situation. We see several people hesitate to vote or not vote, and I think that's significant. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the only person I can remember not voting is Fraubo. Does Bright ultimately vote? Bright does ultimately okay. vote after everyone else okay. except Amaro has voted. Okay. I think it's Kai votes, then Bright votes, then Amaro votes. Okay. So Fraubo is there, but doesn't vote. And the orphans are there, and they do. Yes. And Sela is there, and Mirai is there, and both of them vote. Well, Sela and Mirai are both both hold combat positions on the ship. Mm-hmm. Frabo does not. Uh, Frabo might not consider herself combat personnel. Obviously, the orphans don't care. Mm-hmm. They're too young to understand what's going on, except that we're voting on whether or not to attack the baddies. Who destroyed our home and killed our parents. Yeah. So obviously, we want to attack them. Yes. It also feels like she might kind of be emotional support for Amaro. Yeah, I think Frabo may be very concerned about how her vote will affect Amaro. You had mentioned while we were watching it that you thought that Amaro is so hesitant to vote in part because he feels that he might have undue influence. And Sir- perhaps Frabo feels that she would have undue influence on Amaro specifically. I mean, it's it's possible. I don't totally know how to read that scene. The sense I get from Kai is that he, uh, for all of his <laughs> bluster and snark, does not want to go against the group. Mm-hmm. Kai is waiting to see what the majority of the group will do before he commits himself. Yes, I, that's my read of Kai's actions there too. He wants to be able to snark them, but he, he wants to be included. He wants to be part of the group. Um, whereas Amaro and Bright, I'm not sure. I mean, Bright is the commander. And so, frankly, his vote is the one that actually decides what they do, but he may be waiting for all of the other votes to come in, and then he will vote in accordance with the will of the majority. Why does Amaro wait? Is he waiting because he's waiting to see what the bulk of people do? But if it's that, he could have voted much earlier, around when Kai votes. It becomes very clear that the majority of the people on the bridge are voting to attack. Is he waiting to vote because he's afraid? Is he waiting to vote because of how people might perceive his vote? If the pilot of your most powerful weapon votes to attack, that might strongly influence a group of people to vote to attack. You know, once the majority have voted to attack, is he also voting to attack because he doesn't want to look like a coward? I feel like he and Bright exchange looks. Is he trying to gauge what Bright wants and vote based on that? We are seeing the beginnings of a very interesting relationship between Bright and Amaro, a relationship of rivalry and growing respect and mutual antipathy. (laughs) 
between the two of them, there's a sort of trying to feel each other out. Amaro is waiting for Bright's vote. And I don't think Amaro wants to be in charge. Amaro doesn't like having someone in charge of him, but he doesn't want to be in charge of the ship. Whereas a lot of Bright's behavior is influenced by a sense that he has to keep control of the ship, the situation, the people, at least until he can bring in this priceless brand new ship and priceless brand new battle robot. (laughs) And he's so close. He just has to get to Luna 2. Just one more episode and then he can turn the ship over to the Federation and be done with this. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't think that'd be too bad for your first space mission. Yeah, get a medal. In another moment of sympathy for the people who are ostensibly our enemies, we see Char talking to Vice Admiral uh, Zobel. Dozel. Dozel. Dozel Zabi. Dozel Zabi. I just just combining yeah, his name. That's efficiency. Zobel. <laughs> Uh, but how he's not getting all of the supplies he requested, despite the fact that they know how good he is and know he's still having difficulties, despite the fact that he's reported his casualties to them, despite the fact that he is on a mission of utmost importance, they're still not giving him all the supplies he requested. Can we think of a World War II combatant that was having major supply difficulties towards the end of the war? One that maybe didn't have access to a lot of material resources because it was an island nation? He means Japan. Actually, both of the major Axis powers, both Japan and Germany, suffered because of uh, lack of material resources. Oil, steel, all of the things that you need to build and maintain an army. And for Zeon, out in space, with a lot fewer resources available to them, Zeon is playing that role. That is probably true, at least on the micro scale. For every side in every war, you're probably a lot of soldiers would tell you that you never have everything that you want and need, that that's, that's just not how it works. While we were watching this, Nina observed that it seems like it's always the engineers who get killed first. Well, or supply guys or, you know, grunts. They're right. not even, they're not doing soldier things. They're doing moving crates around things. Well, or guys manning defense turrets. But they're at least in combat. I mean, obviously... For all the good they do, they might as well not be. I wonder if that isn't informed by the experiences in World War II and with the air war. Being a defense turret gunner on a bomber was just about the worst experience you could have. Because you're crammed in to a cockpit that's just about big enough for you. Spooning a machine gun. You're a priority target with no armor protecting you. And, you know, very likely to be wounded and then nobody can get to you to help you. Gunners were killed on landing if landing gear didn't deploy properly. Well, yeah, I was going to say if in any sort of crash landing situation, it's possible that everyone else will make it depending on how you land, but you're you're a goner. But part of the point of this whole series is that everything adjacent to the combat itself is still part of it, including resupply and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, you have those scenes of the conveyor belt tubes that are connecting to the supply ship and the men in them when those tubes get blown, Mm -hmm. uh, being like blown out into space. It would be very easy to blow up supply tubes and blow up machinery and not show people getting killed. So that's a conscious decision. We haven't talked much about the battle itself. 
when the Gundam engages Char and Gadem, the supply officer, the Gundam is presented in a very ominous kind of way. Yeah. The music, the posing, sort of samurai posing in front of the sun with the sword drawn as it approaches at a distance. It's all very much the way you would shoot a villain. I was going to say, it's not the, the uplifting, energetic, oh, here comes our hero to save the day kind of music. Right. It's, it's duel to the death music. We see a substantial return of Char's confidence mm-hmm. as he... Beats uh, the- <laughs> as Char beats uh, the Gundam very badly. Well, and outfoxes him, outmaneuvers him, has learned from his earlier experiences fighting the Gundam in ways that Amaro has not learned from his previous combat experience. Char is just better able to process what he knows and use it. Well, now that Char has learned that his machine gun won't penetrate the Gundam's armor, he doesn't even attempt to use it against Amaro. Instead, he punches and kicks and shoulder checks. And this all feels very sensible when we think about it. But when Amaro braces for Char's charge, bracing in space. Pushing pushing off against all of that nothing. Char points out, uh, like, rookie mistake or something like that. Right, and sends him flying. Yeah. However, we also see that for anyone who doesn't quite have Char's capabilities or Char's quality of mobile suit, all the all the wiles, all the experience don't necessarily protect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we see Gadem's uh, mobile suit get chopped into yes. by the laser sword? Beam saber. Beam saber. Yep. I'll, I will learn the terminology eventually. And that's a great parallel. Gadem fights the same way Char did, punching and kicking and shoulder checking, but where Char was fast enough and good enough that he was able to almost defeat the Gundam that way, Gadem is not so lucky. Uh, Of course, Gadem is using an antiquated mobile suit. Which has, for those of you who haven't been able to watch along with us, a very sort of Roman-looking skirt thing on it. It looks a bit like a gladiator. It does. Gadam is using a Zaku 1. We don't talk about this very much because we usually just call them Zaku, but the mobile suits that Char and his wingmen have been using so far are Zaku's Mark II. Char's is a an upgraded commander version, but they're all sort of from that line, whereas Gadam and the Supply Corps are using the antiquated Zaku 1. We can infer that a human body floating out in the middle of space is dead or will shortly be dead. Mm -hmm. But it's not explicit, Mm -hmm. right? He's not decapitated. He's not bleeding. He's not... It's not as... What's the word I want? Gross. (laughs) Grotesque. Gruesome? Maybe. I don't know. There's a word I want. Gory. It's not as gory as it could be, a la, say, Mortal Kombat. (laughs) (laughs) And so it does kind of stride a line. I also seem to remember having read something... From Tomino talking about how kids can handle uh, much more mature themes and content than we might think that they can. That would be consistent with his whole oeuvre. You can correct his French pronunciation in the comments. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so how much of that was a fight and how much of that was, oh, this is totally fine. We don't have any problem with showing this to kids. Or did it just barely manage to sort of walk a line? Mm -hmm. There was very strong media censorship during the American occupation. I wonder if if that continued post-occupation or if there might not have been a backlash. There was a backlash against it in the immediate aftermath and then... And there was some continuing censorship later, but in a different way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Though that was mostly censorship of a political nature. Yes. 
I don't know how they felt about children's programming featuring violence. And not for nothing, if there were constraints placed on Tomino, it might have been by the toy maker who was sponsoring the show rather than at a sort of network level Mm -hmm. or any sort of public rules about what would or would not be permissible. I would love to know more about the toy maker's interference. Oh, we saw another appearance of Nina's favorite character, a manual, when Hayato is reading the manual for how to operate the main gun. Actually, I think he's reading the manual for how to operate the telephone to call the bridge yep. at that point. God, it, it kills me that somehow they mustered everybody and sent them all out without making sure the comms are working. Bright is terrible at this. He is a bad commander. <laughs> I think that was on Ryu. I don't know. Unless he told everyone to check and they told him they had but hadn't, I think it's on Bright. He needed to make sure everybody had comms and he could contact them all in the field. I mean, his first command, right? Yep. I would just like to point out in more, Kai is not nearly so bad as everyone thinks he is. He doesn't have to tell them that he has a special license and can pilot heavy machinery. And he plays it off once he's back on the bridge as, oh, it's better to do something than to sit around worrying. But he didn't have to put himself in additional danger. He chose to do it and grumbled the whole time, but he still did it. And with that, our heroes and the refugees, with the white base and the Gundam still in tow, finally make their way to the safety of Luna 2. For me, the most striking scene in this episode is the vote. My immediate gut reaction is that it is a total abdication of authority on Bright's part to say, we're going to have a vote. However, I did a little research and collective decision making is actually a big part of Japan's business culture. All of my resources basically talk about a business scenario. It seems odd that it would come up in a military scenario. It's less weird when you remember that almost none of these people are actually soldiers. This is, in a lot of ways, a a textbook, if sped up, example of how collective decision making works. Collective decision-making has its roots in feudal rice farming, where the economies of scale made it unreasonable to try to farm rice on your own, but as a village, it could be very productive. But to share the responsibility meant that the whole village had to make decisions about not just the farming, but the way the village was run together. The first stage of collective decision-making is called nemawashi, and is a consensus building stage. It consists of informal one-on-one discussions with key stakeholders before any kind of official decision is proposed even. And we see this when Mirai is talking to Bright on the bridge. We hear Mirai's opinion. We hear Bright's opinion. We hear Sela chip in. Bright asks Hayato what he thinks about it. And it is all very informal. Mirai is on break. Sayla has taken over for her at the helm, and Mirai is sort of leaning against a, a bulkhead, sipping from a juice box, and she just casually suggests, oh, we should attack. This early consensus building stage is to establish that a decision needs to be made at all, essentially to, to see if there is enough interest in the proposal and backing for the proposal to bring it into a wider discussion. After that is the ringi stage. Now, even if a decision originates from someone higher up, they would often give that idea to sort of a middle manager to propose. 
partially because anything voiced by a CEO or leader is sort of automatically putting pressure on everyone to agree, partially because this then gives those middle managers an opportunity to demonstrate their ability to build consensus and to manage the decision-making process. Now, we don't see Bright give this idea to a middle manager, but it really, I mean, Mirai is sort of a middle manager in the ship, so it does come from her. And Bright is very careful when he proposes the vote not to give any indication of his own feelings. Exactly. Well, and he even makes very clear his assessment of it as a 50-50 prospect. Which struck me as very strange that he would assess these two options and come up with the idea that they're both 50-50 equal chances of success. But if he's trying to avoid swaying anybody one direction or the other, that's really the only way to propose it. Ultimately, the president or leader's approval is necessary for any decision to move forward, but it's usually based entirely on the approval of their subordinates and the approval of other executives. During the Ringi process, decision-making starts at the bottom and works its way up and is always based on buy-in from people who will have to carry out whatever the decision is. So that's why he only asks combat staff to come to the bridge for the vote. They're the ones who will have to put their lives on the line more and will have to actually take action if the vote to attack goes through. And we notice when we think about who votes first, it's a bunch of no-name staff who we don't know anything about and the children. So it's starting at sort of the lowest tier of people and works its way up the chain of command, so to speak. In that first wave of voters, the only major characters who vote immediately are the ones who have already bought into the idea. Sela and Mirai and Hayato, who have all already said they think attacking is a good idea. This whole system can be very counter to hierarchical perceptions of Japan as a kind of top-down leadership structure. However, this Ringi system ensures that everyone feels responsible for the decision and everyone has the necessary information to act on the decision once it's made. A lot of the complaints about collective decision-making from Western business counterparts, and we might argue the same thing in this scenario, is that it takes a long time. Bright could say, we're attacking and be done. That decision takes as long as it took me to say. Having a big discussion and then gathering everyone and then voting, that takes considerably longer time. But it ensures that everyone feels part of the decision. Everyone has the necessary information to act once the decision is made. And implementation then becomes very efficient and very fast. It's subtle, but in the episode, there may be some criticism of the slow pace of this kind of decision making. Because if they had struck even 10 minutes earlier, they might have been able to completely prevent the meeting between Char's cruiser and the supply ship and prevented him from getting his replacement Saku. However, to be fair, making the decision faster doesn't necessarily make implementation any faster. We noticed a lot of chaos in this first sortie. Uh, people who didn't know how to turn on their comms, people who weren't talking to each other and were in each other's way. And that was with the preparation of everybody being involved in the decision and knowing what was coming and having those, that time to get ready. If Bright had simply sent out an announcement, all right, everyone, we're attacking, go to stations, would it have been even more chaotic? Fair. In companies, the Ringi process is accompanied by an actual physical document that is the proposal, which all of the various groups 
from bottom to top who are going to be involved in implementation put an actual stamp on to indicate whether they agree or disagree. And at various points, whoever is responsible for the proposal itself will make amendments and changes to address the concerns of the people who disagree in an effort to get everyone on board and everyone agreeing. And it is the CEO or leader or head of the group who decides last. They are the very last person to put their stamp on it and make the decision official. And yet in Gundam, it's not Bright who votes last. It's actually Amaro. Gee, I wonder if it's a point of tension between the two of them that they're both kind of the leader, but not really. So it took three episodes, but we finally got a mention of the Minovsky particle, which is probably the most important little bit of science fiction stuff in Gundam. To give you a little bit of background, and without relying too much on supplemental materials that were created after the fact to explain things that just happened in the show, Minovsky particles are created by the fusion reactions in the Minovsky reactors that power the ships and the mobile suits. So fusion reactors must have seemed like a much more viable prospect at that point than they do to us now. Yes. And there are are some documents from the 1970s that are real depressing to read now, created by, for example, the Department of Energy in the US, where they were analyzing how long it would take to develop functional nuclear fusion generators. And they thought we would have them by the mid-90s. So, womp womp. Of course, they estimated different levels of funding to develop nuclear reactors. And the actual amount of funding dedicated to that project has been way below the minimum amount they anticipated would be spent on it. Isn't science fun? Anyway. The politics of nuclear energy are a discussion for another time. Yes. And that time is right now for the fictional politics of nuclear energy in the Gundamverse. Because while Minovsky developed a fusion reactor using a fusion reaction with the helium-3 isotope, one that is extracted in the Gundamverse from Jupiter and transported by the Jupiter Energy Fleet back to Earth to be used in those reactors, Xeon developed the ultra-compact Minovsky fusion reactor. So there is some conflict in the sources about who exactly developed the ultra-compact fusion reactor, but whoever it was, they were a scientist and they were working for Xeon at the time. This is significant because the ultra-compact one is the size necessary to put on a mobile suit. So Xeon developed the ultra-compact fusion reactor and then developed the mobile suit using it. Did the technology get leaked to the Federation or the Federation was able to separately come up with an analog? The sources conflict. (laughs) Of course they do. After the Minovsky fusion reactor had been developed, during experiments with it, scientists discovered the Minovsky particle, which was a new special subatomic particle generated by the fusion reaction. And it has a couple of weird properties, the most important one of which is that it interferes with various kinds of electromagnetic radiation, which prevents long-range scanners, long-range communications, and to some lesser degree, even visual site beyond a certain range. The most important consequence of that for Gundam purposes is that once you have a bunch of Minovsky reactors operating in a fairly confined area of space, it generates enough Minovsky particles to make long-range communications basically impossible. And that means that in a battle between spaceships with Minovsky reactors or mobile suits, you have to get up real close. They've gone almost back in time to fighting hand-to-hand again. 
think it gets mentioned, oh, we have to fight in visual range now because of Minofsky. It's a throwaway line. Mm -hmm. We have to fight in visual range because science, from a narrative perspective, watching two big ships hurl impossibly large bombs at each other is not exciting. Nobody wants to watch planets or ships bombard each other. The sorts of combat stories that interest people, the sorts of combat stories that give us heroes, are combats where individuals matter, where it's a duel. The Minovsky Particle provides a justification for returning to that kind of Age of Heroes style combat. And the mobile suit being shaped like a person is so much more personal. And it's like seeing a battle between two people much more viscerally than a duel between two different fighter planes. In the setting notes, which were created by Tomino and his team during production of the show and were intended as an internal Sunrise document to help everyone understand and stay on the same page with the setting for Gundam, there's a discussion of the Minovsky particle. And Tomino identifies the purpose of it essentially to be to create a sci-fi setting that was explicitly reminiscent of the early days of World War II, when radar existed but was extremely limited. And most of the fighting, even fighting in airplanes, was conducted in visual range without any fancy schmancy sensors, guided bombs. No satellite guidance system. Just your eyes and your machine gun and your beam saber. They mm. had those in World War II, right? Absolutely. And it makes sense that they would use a particle for their scientific justification when you look at the major developments in physics in the 1960s and 70s. Absolutely. I mean, this is the era when subatomic particles are really being discovered practically one a year, where we are talking about quarks and leptons and muons and gluons and mesons and all of those that I don't fully understand. And it was just a couple of years earlier in 1974 when the what would become the standard model, this is the standard model for particle physics, was first really developed. Well, and it was in the mid-60s that they began doing quantitative experiments on quantum entanglement. Which is just science magic, right? You hear about quantum entanglement, the idea that particles could be separated and yet still somehow transmit information back and forth at faster than light speeds in ways we don't understand. In ways that should be impossible, given our current understanding of physics. Exactly. And so you, in a world where that sort of thing is being discovered every year, it's really easy to imagine that we might just discover some magic particle that does whatever. The magic particle that does, now you have to fight in Gundams. Physicists, please discover the Gundams particle. Well, and because... Scientists are nerds. We know that if anyone ever does discover a particle that interferes with electromagnetic radiation in that way, someone will propose naming it the Minovsky particle. I live in hope. You know, Japan already has a military program. They're developing a powered suit style augmented infantry armor and sensors suite. Earthbound or is the goal for in space? Earthbound for now. Hmm. <laughs> it's one of those enhanced future soldier style setups. Where everything is integrated into one mobile infantry powered suit. In closing the episode, we bid a fond farewell to Captain Gadem and the finest mustache of UC 79. Tom, would you like to say a few words? So long, Space Walrus. Cuckoo, Kachu. Thank you.
next week, we'll return with episode 1.4, On the Space Road Again, to talk about which of Char's grunts had the most embarrassing death. Bishon and Sparkle. But we just got here. Bright grows a spine. A ship by any other name. I guess we'll just die then. Tech memes for future teens. Dangerous four-year-olds. Amaro's eating disorder. And everybody's going to jail. Will you be able to survive? You know, I think this is the first episode where no one got slapped. Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling that Camille is a girl's name on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Now we are absolutely definitely recording. Okay. You gonna bleep me? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I just think people... Bleep. An asteroid dragged into Earth's Earth orbit. Orbit. Earth's orbit. As episode Earth's 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 orbit. Having to be creative so consistently. (laughs) 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 So one more time. Okay. (laughs) Let yourself laugh, man. I'm realizing all the laughter in these episodes is me. You never laugh. I, I laugh sometimes. <laughs> okay. It's fine. Everything is fine, Tom. Tom.